0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to fill you in on something super cool. Power to Change is pleased to announce that the P2CS Next Step Scholarship is available across Canada in 2022. So this scholarship is for current residents of Canada entering into their first year of post-secondary undergrad this September 2022. The application is open until May 10th, 2022, so you're going to want to jump on it as soon as possible. This scholarship is designed to encourage a healthy transition to post-secondary, both by offering funds and by facilitating connections to faith communities on campus. There are 43 scholarships available, totaling up to $30,000. For more info on how to apply, visit p2c.sh slash next steps or p2c.sh slash leverage next for French. Got it? Good. That's all we got for you today. We'll get out of your hair. Now for the podcast.
1: Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I'm back with the Apologetics Canada podcast. Glad that you're with us. I have a special guest today. Raphael Samuel, he is an adjunct speaker here with uh, Apologetics Canada. He's a Christian speaker, apologist, and an anesthesiologist. He was born in Durban, South Africa. He obtained his medical degree and a master's degree in medicine there. He further obtained fellowships in anesthesiology from the Colleges of Medicine of South Africa and the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. He is currently completing a master's degree in Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, my alma mater, and uh, Raphael uh, lives in Hamilton, Canada with his wife, Rashmi, and their two sons. Welcome to the show, Raphael. It's great to be here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you have two boys. I have two boys. Remind me the ages
2: of your sons. Elijah is uh, 11, and uh, Daniel is 9. Yeah.
1: Great. So just, just behind uh, me, my, my boy Will is 12, and Tristan is 14. So we are getting into the thick of the teenage years. So we're going to be talking on, uh, on an, an exciting topic today, one that uh, I always enjoy talking on. We're going to be talking on the human body, both beautiful and broken. And I'm looking forward to talking with you on this subject, particularly given your perspective in medicine as you've thought on this subject. But before we jump into that, I first just wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about yourself. In particular, how did you get into medicine? Did you just one day think, man, I just want to poke people with needles? Like, <laughs> how did that
2: develop? So I'm from, I'm from Durban, South Africa. I grew up in quite a unique setting, which is one of the reasons why I actually entered medicine. So I grew up in a community that was 100% Indian, ethically, demographically, and culturally. And the strange thing about this was that this was in the the middle of Africa, uh, because as you may well be aware that uh, at that time apartheid was at its peak in South Africa so the races were kept quite separate
1: let me just let me just ask you just quickly on that so you're saying races even outside of African but even for yourself being Indian was were kept separate
2: yeah they were there were four predominant races in or racial groups in South Africa. They were the whites, the blacks, the Indians, and the coloreds. So I'm actually a fifth or sixth generation Indian South African. My ancestors were from India, brought by the British to work in South Africa. But um, I grew up completely Indian and isolated from the rest of the other communities because of apartheid. Uh, so it was it was quite a, a unique setting. So, um, just to be frankly honest with you, honor is quite an important thing in the Indian community, as well as other things like religious pluralism. And you know, it seemed like you become a doctor, you you get good grades, you automatically shunted to to become a doctor or an engineer. So that's just the the frank. And brutally honest aspect of the answer. Uh, You know, I had good grades. Being a doctor would have brought honor to my family. There was this partial truth that I did want to help people. But uh, yeah, along the journey, I'm so thankful that, you know, I fully embraced the gospel and God had worked through my life since then. And I can honestly say that God even used that. And one of my favorite quotes is from from John Piper, I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he wields it in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure. And becoming a Christian and experiencing the gospel of grace really transformed my perception about medicine and really changed that completely. Well, it's
1: interesting cuz one of my next questions was going to be, you know, how how did you become uh, a Christian? You know, w- what took place there? So it's it's interesting to me that your faith and your profession are intertwined.
2: Yes. Uh, so there were there were four I would say four periods of of significant transition in my life. I was brought up in a Catholic home. One of the changing points was in high school a Catholic priest asked me whether I read my Bible. And uh, so I said, you know, I I don't read the Bible that often, and I often forget to read the Bible. And then he asked me, what do you do most often? And so I said, I study uh, most often. I know it's sad, but it was true. Uh, And so then he suggested that uh, I put a Bible on my desk and every time before I studied to uh, to read a bit of the Gospels. And so I actually did that. And that transformed my life. I fell in love with Jesus Christ completely and utterly. And then the next moment of transition came when I met my wife, Reshmi, who was who is a remarkable and phenomenal person. And we were both, both medical students. And I was... Um, Catholic, and she was an evangelical Christian, and uh, we fell in love, and quite hard and fast. And love led to challenge, and we fought the Reformation in our courtship, which uh, which I lost, uh, and but it was sort of a, a, a rather joyful loss because the thing that I lost most was my pride my pride in uh, righteousness, -righteousness, self-righteousness, salvation through works. And uh, what I gained was so much more, just a different perspective of grace. I became smitten by the gospel of grace, the saving work of Jesus on the cross for me, and the fact that I didn't need to do anything to earn salvation, that it was a free gift from God. And simultaneous to that, Um, I moved from being a progressive Christian to an Orthodox Christian. I think the word progressive Christian is actually a bit of a misnomer. You know, I flew over Greenland once and I looked out of the plane and when I looked down, I saw only white and I thought it should have been called Whiteland. But (laughs) the thing is, that's the same thing about being a progressive Christian. I dabbled in uh, Christian universalism, moral relativism. Scripture was, for me, like a smorgasbord. You know, um, I would pick and freely choose from uh, the Bible buffet. My conversations and my fights with Reshpi really brought that into perspective. I realized that I was actually, instead of being progressive, I was regressive towards salvation, and towards scripture, which are the two fundamental pillars of being a Christian. And then the last transformation came when um, a friend of mine introduced me to apologetic re- resources. And then I became exposed to the historical, moral, logical, and scientific coherence of the Christian faiths. And I made a, a rather shocking and politically incorrect discovery that Christianity made sense and that it satisfied the existential longings of my soul, not because it merely satisfied and makes sense, but because it was true. I made the discovery that it was significant and it wasn't just a... Uh, it was significant in that it wasn't just a good moral teaching, or a good way to live your life. It was infinitely significant because it was actually true.
1: Let's delve into that. That it is true, and there and there is this this beauty to that truth, particularly, um, you know, given what we're studying and what we're looking at. And so I think each of us have a, a different. Uh, niche or interests right that that we're uh, exploring and looking into that that it, particularly when we're looking at our faith of of what encourages our faith and what gives us reason to believe that God does exist and has made himself known in the person of jesus and 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 that just continues to develop as that becomes part of part of our worldview in this conversation we want to focus in on how medicine and particularly your studies have informed your faith and in have encouraged your faith particularly. And one of the, you know, the, and so there's these two issues that are happening when we look at, say, the human body, both the beauty and complexity of the human body, but also the brokenness of the human body. And so let, let's start with the beauty of, of the human body. So as in you know, a physician, particularly as an anesthesiologist, what is it that really compels you about the human body that, that you find remarkable that encourages your faith?
2: Rashmi and I once visited a Airbnb uh, in the countryside a while ago, and I was struck by this um, house that was about two centuries old, the owner of the house had actually built the house himself, not only that he made the bricks out of clay himself and one of the uh, writings that I saw on uh, the wall about this uh, traditional manner was that if you look carefully at, at the bricks, some of them actually bore the owners fingerprints two centuries later. And I've had the privilege of studying the human body for a large part of my life, both in my studies uh, to become a doctor and as in my studies to become an anesthesiologist. And this beauty and complexity demands explanation. And I'm left with the, the question as whose fingerprints are actually on us? When I consider the physiology of the human body. And anesthesiology is is all about physiology, Uh, understanding how the body works and the maintenance of physiology throughout the trauma of surgery. Um, Our job as anesthesiologists is to actually maintain homeostasis, maintain this normal physiology while the surgeon is actually trying to kill the patient. I've studied this human physiology and what I can say is that there's a magnificence to the mag- mathematics in the human body. For example, you know, just the simple fact that we breathe. We've been doing it from the day we were born constantly, but we, we don't pause and actually reflect on the mathematics involved in the, the physical process of breathing when we take a breath, oxygen in a specific concentration enters our airways, and there's actually a law that we, we learn about, Poiseuille's law, which governs the flow of air through those, through those large airways, and then it changes as it comes to the smaller airways with regards to it being more turbulent, and then a mathematical number called Reynolds number plays more effect, and then you get fixed law of diffusion as the oxygen diffuses across the alveoli. And all of these things are affected by these different factors that had to be uh, factored in, such as the radius of the alveolia, uh, the radius and diameter of the airways. And you know that in asthma, uh, it's a pathophysiological state where that becomes affected and we can actually use mathematical principles to describe what actually goes wrong. Uh, and then you back to Poiseuille's law uh, uh, to describe the flow of oxygen in the blood. And then there's mathematical equations such as the delivery of oxygen, the cardiac output takes into effect. And Eugene Wechner in a essay called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the, in the Physical Universe, where he talks about how mathematics in the human mind as the product of the human mind can actually describe the effectiveness and the complexity of the physical universe and i've seen this unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the human body and then you come to the uh, spectacular elegance of the engineering you know for example just a simple movement of moving the arm to pick up uh, a cup or uh, a mug of coffee that involves so many different processes of engineering. There's mechanical engineering involved, electrical engineering, because our nerves function with uh, electrical impulses. There's chemical engineering involving the synapses of the different uh, joints. And then you get the beauty of the biochemistry and that's that's a whole nother topic. But what amazes me, uh, and I just wanna sidetrack a, a little bit, um, I read a bit about SETI, I'm not sure if you're aware about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and this was actually a government-funded project in in the 1960s, where people would listen carefully for signs of intelligence in space, in out of space, and they would spend hours and, you know, it, it has been publicly defunded, but it's still privately funded. And you gotta ask yourself, what are they looking for? They're looking for complex patterns, basically. When I look at the human body, in each of our 30 trillion cells, there's a complex pattern, uh, specific complexity as William Debsky uh, says, in each of our cells, in a biological molecule called DNA, And that for me is remarkable. Uh, The fact that the human genome DNA deoxyribonucleic acid is actually an efficient biological way to store information. And as you know, information requires a mind and a coder is required for a code. If you had to type out the 3.2 billion genetic letters of this genetic code, it would take a person typing at 60 words per minute, um, eight hours a day, seven days a week, almost 50 years to type out this entire human genome. And we look at out of space for complex and specific patterns. But we have it inside each of ourselves.
1: Well, that's the, that's the irony, isn't it? That we'll spend so much money with SETI and those sorts of things looking for intelligent life. And yet here we, we are it. I mean, because isn't that the irony of all ironies is that I can look at my DNA code and I immediately am aware of the fact that I am not my DNA. That, that I can read my own DNA code is, is ironic in and of itself and that there is there is a distinction between the two. But I think one of the challenges that we live in, though, uh, Raphael, is that we, we have a society that has become bifurcated in its worldview. In my PhD work, I, I studied a guy, a physical chemist, by the name of Michael Polanyi, who would become a philosopher. But one of my favorite things he wrote from his time in science was this. He said, Everyone knows that you cannot inquire into the functions of of living organisms without referring to the purpose served by them and by the organs and processes which perform these functions. Yet, we must pretend that all such teleological explanations are merely provisional. The story goes around, goes around among biologists everywhere that teleology is a woman of easy virtue whom the biologist disowns in
2: public but
1: lives with in private.
2: Exactly. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, that a uh, Western man has educated himself into imbecility. Um, and, you know, that's so true. We ignore the obvious. We ignore, we get so interested in all these um, ologies and all the studies that we we don't look what's directly in front of us. And one of the other fingerprints of of design that I find quite remarkable is found in the cell, you know when Darwin looked At uh, the human body and he came up with his theory of evolution, we didn't have access to the cell and now we've discovered that the cell is actually like a little factory uh, a minute factory and work done by Michael Behe has, has shown that they're irreducible complex little machines that are in the cell that make no sense in the worldview of materialism, meaning that they had to be a designer of these machines because they were so irreducibly complex. Well, it also doesn't make sense within
1: a, a neo-Darwinian perspective because i know some people would say well okay darwinism did change once once we learned about you know the cells and dna and, and that sort of thing but but even within neo darwinism as you know you you need life if you even want to appeal to evolution but what we're dealing with here is we're saying no 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 first you have to deal with where where life came from that th- this is a fundamental question that It was interesting because I was talking with some university students recently there in Toronto, at the University of Toronto, and one of them was a chemist. And she said, yeah, I'll grant you, the origin of life is definitely a challenge. But then she just wanted to immediately jump into you know, evolution or kind of g- go on to the next stage. She's like, whoa, whoa, whoa no, you need to sit there <laughs> and deal with this challenge. You can't just move past it.
2: You know, I think it extends just beyond the origin of life. You know, we have a fine-tuned universe that seems to be remarkably rigged for the existence of life. And it is so improbable that we have a, a universe that's conducive to life. And, you know, we can have this whole discussion on the fine-tuning and the vast improbabilities of the, uh, of the constants uh, that came into existence it's like we won the cosmic lottery, but somehow that lottery had to be rigged. And then you get this concept of abiogenesis, which is the appearance of life from non-life. And the probability of that is basically improbable. And I think James Tour speaks a lot on that, and he's devoted a lot of his career on that. But before you can even get to the concept of evolution, you have to Explore these other concepts as an explanation for life.
1: And I, I would uh, highly recommend if people are are interested in this topic. There's the book uh, Signature in the Cell. I've read it a, a couple times. It is so well done by Stephen Meyer. And even just following all the footnotes and the different studies, there there is just a wealth of information there. I want to push back on you though. For a moment here, in all fairness to what I hear people challenging me on with regards to this. And and I think this will be a fun discussion for you and I kind of to tease out together, particularly from your perspective as an anesthesiologist, because I think you've got a lot of insight here that can shed light on part of this conversation. Because there's some people that they don't want to go the teleological route, what they tend to do is want to reduce a human being to just a chemical machine. And so one of the things that they'll often do is just point to the chemical reactions that human ha- humans have and that we can manipulate. And particularly, y- your profession is about manipulating the chemical interactions that are taking place. So for example, you know what drugs would be required to paralyze me for example. And so I think what what I hear a lot of university students will say to me are the challenges that they'll bring up within these conversations, especially if they're, say, a chemist or something. They'll say, well, well, how do you explain the fact that you can give me whatever chemical and I'll be paralyzed? Does that not just show that I'm just a brain? Or uh, we could give some other chemicals that are going to affect me in other ways or get me to forget things or maybe could change my personality or whatever it might be. Does that does that mean that I'm just
2: a chemical machine? That's a great question. And, you know, I think uh, J.P. Morlin has done quite a bit of work on this from a metaphysical or philosophical component. But for me... It boils down to three different perspectives. Number one, it's illogical to actually claim that we are just a brain. And even our thoughts are just the movement or random movement of atoms. I think Jay Haldin, um, the, I think in the 1920s, as early as that, he said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if my thoughts are just... The random motion of atoms and my brain is just a reduction, um, uh, just a simple organ that came about as a byproduct of evolution, why do I have any logical reason to believe any of this random movement of particles that are occurring in my brain? Why do I have any rational reason to actually have any sort of beliefs? Apart from the belief that my thoughts are just completely random. Plantinga
1: also wrote on that, uh, where where the problem really lies, I believe, is what the, the book is called, making that point as well.
2: I sometimes look at the writing on the wall by by these new atheists that uh the so-called new atheists. Sam Harris just or oh, had recently came out with a book on free will and he says, free will is an illusion. And that is the rational reductionist view of the human mind and the concept of free will. But I wonder whether he freely decided to write that book. And Daniel Dennett, for example, as well, uh, gave a talk, uh, a TED talk on uh, the concept that consciousness is just an illusion. So I actually had to YouTube that talk to see whether he was conscious during that talk. It's, it's so ironic, right? Um, and I think the mind is best explained in terms of modality that uh, we are we have a human body and we do have a mind and there are separate modes. Uh, they are separate sort of uh, uh, substances. But there's a correlation and an interdependence between the two. And I think J.P. Morlin uh, uses the best analogy where he speaks about a person driving a car. So when I'm actually performing an anesthetic and I put the patient uh, to sleep during induction and maintain the patient, uh, patient's uh, unconscious state, I am... Uh, sort of trapping the mind in the body. Um, The person doesn't have access to his physical senses. I have not killed the mind or made the mind unconscious, but um, because of the dependence between the, the physical brain and the interrelation between the brain and the mind, I have affected one, but not really affected the other in terms of, its existence. Mm-hmm.
1: It's kind of like a car can have a flat tire, but that doesn't mean a car doesn't have a driver any longer, right? That the two the two are interconnected. So yeah, if you if you've got a flat tire, it's not going to be able to drive. Uh, and so I what I hear you saying. And by the way, uh, the book by Plantinga is where the conflict really lies. Uh, but but so basically, what you're saying then is, you know for lack of a better term right as a physician you're you're a, me- a body mechanic you're dealing with that body but the body still has a driver it still has a mind absolutely and
2: you know you can take this uh, all the way to the belief that embryos are, are not human because they can be frozen but you know i've worked in a center that performs cardiac Procedures uh, in South Africa where people are frozen for a a period of time. It's called deep hypothermic circulatory arrest. And during that time, we actually kill the patient. Uh, We have to kill the patient because they won't survive the procedure because it's surgery performed on the arch of the aorta and it supplies the, the auto supplies the, the blood supply to the brain first. So in order to access that, you have to perform a, a cardiac arrest on the patient and the patient is actually frozen for that period of time. So during that time, does the patient cease to exist? Does the patient cease to be human? Because we wake up the patient after 30 minutes, we restore life to the patient and the patient is still a human being. So you have this erroneous perception of what it is to be human that you get from pure materialism.
1: And I think this is such an important perspective to to help people to appreciate that, because there's a lot of people sadly that have inherited this idea that if you're going to be a person of faith, or particularly in our conversation, if you're going to be a Christian, well, you can't be a scientist. As though the two are in opposition to one another. But the reality is, is that the the two are dealing with different things, but are actually interconnected. On the, on the one hand, you can reduce a person to chemical reactions, and we can do good things by being able to do that but if you reduce a person to only chemical reactions you do incredible harm by by doing that by not seeing the difference between the parts versus the whole
2: and you know i think that's probably one of the most serious threats to the future of medicine is the insidious increasing influence of the two M's, moral relativism and materialism. Uh, It threatens to erode the human face of medicine.
1: You know, a friend of mine who's a physician was saying the same thing to me. He basically talking about how much moral nihilism has crept into the profession, so much so that he says that doctors these days, and I'm wondering how you react to this, He says doctors these days have been reduced to providers instead of medical practitioners, that now you provide what people want instead of actually seeking to heal people.
2: Uh, That's exactly, uh, you know, the dilemma facing many doctors at the moment and many Christian doctors. I made a... a rather uncomfortable discovery many years ago. Actually, watching a romantic comedy, I'm naturally naturally allergic to romantic comedy. <laughs> I wake I up in hives, and I think that should apply to all people with a Y chromosome.
1: <laughs> I was gonna guess. Something tells me Rashmi was a part of this. You know, you watching this movie.
2: Somehow, Rashmi twisted my arm and made me suffer through that movie. And I was actually reading a, a book. I convinced her that I'd, I'd watch this movie if, if you allow me to read a book. And it was called um, The Fault in Our Stars. I'm not sure whether you, you remember Maybe. this. Uh, it was I based haven't. in a best-selling, best-selling book. It's about uh, these two people, Hazel and Augustus, two uh, people that are... Uh, in love with each other, and they both have terminal cancer. And Hazel, Hazel's, um, one of the items on Hazel's bucket list is to visit one of the authors that actually inspired her. And his name is Peter van Houten, and he was based in the Netherlands. So they save up their money and they go across to the Netherlands to meet this, this author, Peter van Houten. He frankly dismisses them And what he actually says really made me put my book down and it had seared my soul because he tells this to Hazel uh, that you are a side effect of an evolutionary process that cares little for individual lives. You are an experiment, a failed experiment in genetic mutation. And if you break that down logically, That's almost 90% correct because cancer is a failed genetic uh, mutation. It's completely genetics. He didn't get it completely correct because he said that evolution cares little and evolution cares nothing. It's completely impersonal. And that was just so profound. It just broke me because as a doctor, we are trained to care for the weak And the basic tenet of evolution is the survival of the fittest. Why should we care for the weak when the weak should just be trampled upon by the process of evolution in its pursuit of perfection for the advancement of the species?
1: So now I I think this is a good segue into this second topic that we wanted to address as we look at the human body is we we see that there's this beauty in complexity there's this teleology or or design there's this purpose is what the word uh, means but there's this dark side where um, there there's there's brokenness there is there is the brokenness inside such as cancer as you've just mentioned but there's also this more, insidious brokenness where it begins to change and affect us and particularly the way that we see each other. And so you and I have a choice, don't we, that we can see each other as a failed advancement of evolution, right? Or that there is something more to us. I mean, it's interesting for me, uh, Raphael, I've been thinking a lot about this lately as I have um, a talk coming up this summer where I'm getting into some issues that are dealing more around the legal and medical, philosophical issues around the legal and medical profession that kind of collide. And and one of the books that I was asked to respond to as a part of my paper is called The Nazi Doctors. And it's interesting to read this book because I didn't even know this, by the way, but even when the Nuremberg trial took place, the doctors were the first ones on trial because they were really the start of what happened. And I think that there's something that we got to appreciate about this as a society. You want to know where these issues start. Well, we know historically where they crept in. They crept in in the medical profession, and it crept in with the way doctors were being told to view their patients. And there was a a line that began to circulate amongst the profession, and that was life unworthy of life. And that ultimately these doctors became they became the judge of whose lives were worth life and whose were not and then they would choose
2: who would be killed i think that's an important concept that we really need to appreciate i think you are so right as an anesthesiologist you know if i don't if you don't mind me just using anesthesiology as an analogy for apologetics and the importance of apologetics People always think that anesthesiology is just putting the patient asleep and that's quite easy. You can just ask Michael Jackson's doctor. He used propofol, you know, one of the drugs that we use constantly and Michael Jackson never woke up, but the key component of anesthesiology is actually to wake people up. Putting them to
1: sleep is easy. Waking them up is the hard part.
2: Yes. Maintaining that normal human physiology throughout the trauma of surgery And ensuring that the patient wakes up, you know, in a comfortable state, having used your drugs to manipulate the the traumas of surgery, waking people up is absolutely fundamental in anesthesiology. And I think that's the role of the apologist with the help of the Holy Spirit is to wake people up to the fact that ideas have consequences. And nihilism has consequences. I mean, Victor Franklin, uh, the Holocaust survivor, said that so clearly that when you reduce man to a mere augmentation of just body parts, you make him susceptible to the effects of nihilism. And he was convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz was actually preconceived in the mind of nihilistic philosophers. And we are already seeing this in medicine. And it saddens me so greatly. You know, you pick up the Journal of of Medical Ethics, one of the premier medical ethical journals. And I still remember, and I'm still scarred by one of the articles that I read in there. The title of the article was Post-Birth Abortion, Why Babies Should Die. That was the title of the article in this premier medical journal. Infanticide is already being talked about. I mean, Peter Singer's been speaking about it since the 80s about what it is to be a person. He says in his book, Practical Ethics, that newborns are not self aware. A dog is self aware and pigs are self aware. Therefore, we should save pigs and dogs more than we should save the newborn. And what was fascinating about this article, this article made the argument so clear and so logical that there is no difference between a fetus and the newborn. And the same reasons why we allow abortion, we should allow the killing of a newborn. Now, this is in... I repeat, in a premier medical journal of ethics. It just broke me uh, that we even having this discussion, the logic was crystal clear. Uh, We we as, uh, as doctors and as scientists know that there is no fundamental difference between the fetus and the newborn. But the conclusion was completely barbaric that because of that, we should kill the newborn. Instead of saying, We know that there's no difference between the newborn and the fetus. We should say both. Mm -hmm. They extrapolated and with such precise logic that we should therefore kill the newborn. We we look at what's going on in in countries like India and China, where they're having a a problem of uh, of gendercide, where... Uh, I was just reading an article from The Lancet. Now, The Lancet is one of the top two premier medical journals uh, in the world. Uh, The Lancet and the New England Journal of of Medicine. And this article spoke, frankly, about the problem of sex-selective abortion. In India and China, they are having a big problem. Since the 1980s, approximately 30 million Females, women, have been aborted because women are not uh, seen to be worthy of life. Now, is that pro-woman? Do women have a right to their body? I would say that women have a right to life. And we speak about 6 million Jews, the tragedy of 6 million Jews dying in a Holocaust. What about the death of 30 million females? Uh, where are the monuments to those females since the 1980s between 1980 and 2010? That's what the article spoke about.
1: Well, it's interesting because these things are catching up with us and people are going to be dealing. We we are in the midst of beginning to deal with the implications of this. I mean, there's 40 million men in China right now with no potential of a spouse. They're called bare branches in China. You can look this up, listeners. Uh, and it's because of what Raphael's talking about here is sex, sex-selective abortion, men being chosen over women. So here's the irony, though. Of what, I think what you're getting at. On the one hand, we have a society that says, "Well, you shouldn't. You're, you know, you can kill the unborn, uh, you can abort the unborn, but you can't decide, you know, the gender." Sort of thing. It's these weird dichotomies that we've got, where it's like, really, it doesn't seem to me logically like you can have it both ways. It's, it's one of the ones I've been thinking about too. On the other side of this, Raphael's is how much people care about the environment. You've got people that are going to university today. Trust me, you and I have spent enough time in academia to see that, what what are they being taught? Well, they're being taught that the world's meaningless, that life is meaningless. But at the same time, you know, these people are willing to give their lives for a tree and you can't help but think like, what is is going on here? There is this conflict in their worldview that they're holding on to opposing ideas where people think that you can have it both ways. This will catch up with us eventually. And these ideas will sadly become more coherent and it's not going to be for the better.
2: Yeah. If I trace back, you know, the decline, particularly in, in medicine, I think when we, we crossed a barrier that was established by the ancients when we made abortion legal. Uh, I remember second year of, of medical school, learning the Hippocratic Oath, and it was such a, such a, a ceremony filled with all pomp, and uh, you know we had the dean of our, our medical school there. And one of the key elements of the original Hippocratic Oath that we said, and we took an oath, was that I would not give a pessary to a woman uh, that would induce her, uh, or would induce a miscarriage. And I can just recall all my friends, all my colleagues who have broken that oath just because it's become legal. And we crossed this barrier that the ancients really set at in medicine where we place medicine on a slippery slope. We moved from solely preserving life and from bettering life and human existence and, and human suffering to actually taking life. And those two are actually incompatible. It's such a contrariety in their outlooks. And that's the big challenge of medicine, uh, having having placed it on that slippery slope. And, and this,
1: this is interesting because I, I brought this t- subject up recently. I was speaking at the University of British Columbia and a student was asking me about, it, basically his question was with regards to different disabilities and life being unworthy of life, really, and about you know whether or not you should you know abort those those people or not and and trust me the disabled community in Canada feels completely rejected they feel like a burden and i've i've heard from so many of them my my heart goes out to them but one of the things i said to the student is why is it that we in our current culture think that death is the solution why is it that we don't value life so much that we roll up our sleeves, we dig into our science to seek answers, to preserve life, not to take it?
2: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great question. And you know, just with all these questions, it's amazing that as I've studied the human body and as science advances in discovering the the diversity, the complexity of it, the questions that are generated are actually metaphysical. Mm -hmm. It's profoundly metaphysical. The questions that you, you deal with with the human body and what I've experienced is profoundly metaphysical. But we shunt these metaphysical questions away because of this worldview of materialism that reduces everything to science. And that's a great tragedy. Uh, the exclusion of metaphysics from concepts of truth. Because, you know, as so many people have said, uh, you can't know that anything is true unless you can prove it by science. And that itself is so illogical because that is not a scientific statement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that just brings us to, to this question of the brokenness of the, of the human body. Uh, And that's one thing that I've realized over this last 20 years that I've been working as a doctor is this brokenness demands an answer. And, you know, even working during this COVID pandemic and seeing the fear, seeing the, um, the panic in so many people as they try and deal with COVID. And, you know, I was really hoping that COVID would make people stop in their tracks and start to think of the real important metaphysical questions, the existential questions of human existence. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Where am I heading? What happens to me after I die? Because if there's one thing I I can say, having worked in literally three different continents in Europe, in North America, and in Africa, and worked amongst the richest and amongst the poorest, one thing is constant, the brevity and transience of human existence. And unfortunately, I just have a sense that people are slipping back into their distractions. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, said something, he said, people often stumble across truth, but they pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and hurry off in the opposite direction, and I was hoping that COVID would actually be this moment, this defining moment for people to stop and think, having so many people... uh, Pass away and so many people being affected by it to stop and think about just the transience of human life, and this demands an explanation
1: you know as we as we close our time together, raphael I, there's there's lots we could talk about, and we'll we'll pick these themes up more in the future for sure i, I I'm curious what would you say to a young person that's uh, in university thinking about going into medicine what 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 advice would you give them? a Christian young person?
2: Well, I would say that it is a beautiful and rewarding field. It's an opportunity to be Jesus and to see Jesus in the very least of the individuals, uh, in people that are at their weakest, at their lowest, and to bring the compassion of Jesus to the hurting and the dying. I would encourage them to enter it, but I would also encourage them to brace themselves for persecution, as I would encourage any Christian in every aspect of life. Even now, if you bake a cake, um, you know, if you have a store that, that sells cakes, wedding cakes, that opens you up for persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, medicine. You know, we are at the frontier for a lot of the implementation of these worldviews that, that we, we discussed about, you know, with euthanasia, uh, it's, it's called made uh, medical assistance in dying in Canada, uh, at abortions, um, you know, transgender surgery, surrogacy, all these topical questions. So be prepared for persecution. But there's also, a delight in seeing the beauty of God in the human body, and to be Jesus to the the hurting, the sick, and the dying. Yeah, and
1: and I would and I would say, uh, along with that, we need more Christians to take their worldview into the medical profession that values life and and I would say you know as the church we need to do we need to continue to inspire and maybe we could say do a better job of inspiring a christian worldview that is understood within the the realm of science is w- with understood within the realm of medicine and all these things that we don't you know take our christian hat off when we go to work and on when we go to church on sunday but we take them with us wherever wherever we go i think the world needs the Christian perspective more than ever, particularly here in Canada. I'm so thankful for people like yourself, uh, Raphael, that continue to share the hope that they have in Jesus, and to use your profession and the insights you gain from it to be able to do so. I want to encourage people. If you'd like to hear more from Raphael, you can do so through apologetics canada you can book him to come and speak at your church or conference or whatever it might be he loves talking on these issues and would be happy to do so at your church any final thoughts before we conclude raphael
2: just the final thought that you know in this demand for an answer to the brokenness what's what i find and You know, many years ago, I asked a a colleague or I asked a chaplain uh, as a medical student what made him not get depressed, constantly dealing with the death and dying. And uh, he was a Catholic priest and he told me to be comfortable working with the sick, you have to be comfortable with your own mortality. And I thought that quite profound. And I thought about that for many years after and I thought the only reason I can be comfortable with my own mentality is if I have hope, and um, not just the hope that we see uh, as an arbitrary word—a hope that's not rooted or grounded in anything—and uh, we see that in in so many articles, in like uh, as home decor, you know, this concept of hope. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping actually in? And the Christian hope is actually rooted in history, in the person of Jesus who died and who rose again who chose the way of suffering and who overcame suffering by the resurrection and that gives us such tremendous hope Amen
1: Thank you Raphael for joining us, thank you listeners, again this has been the AC podcast which is a ministry of Apologize Canada, we'll be coming back next week with more things to think about See you then